welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. Psalm 119, verses 105 and 111, New International Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're very grateful to be with you today as we continue the series we began last week on Anchored by Truth. We've entitled this series, Why Am I Here? To help us continue considering a question that has probably occurred to just about every person who has ever lived, the answer to the question is both simple and profound. We're all here because God made us. That's a pretty simple statement, but it has profound implications. So to help us explore some of these implications, today we are fortunate to have Dr. Greg Alexander back on the show with us. Greg is a retired Tallahassee physician who has taught an adult Sunday school class for more than 25 years. As such, he has seen humanity from all sides, and he is definitely a very deep student of the Bible. Greg, would you like to take a couple of minutes and tell us a little bit about why you've been such a faithful teacher for your church? I have taught the Bible because I believe it. In a sermon I heard, it was said that the reason Jesus came was to make the world a better place. No, that wasn't the reason he came. He came to die for the sins of sinners like me and for the sins of the world. And he said so, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. I'm not bringing up this point to poke at the preacher, but to say that the truths of the Bible aren't being taught or preached as they once were. The biblical doctrines of salvation and righteousness have all too often been replaced by more inclusive language. Your opening verse, John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That verse is seen as narrow-minded or bigoted by many people of the world. Without knowledge of God's Word, a person has no real direction or guidance in life. The following verse comes from Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Bible has the words of life, the words that point us to Jesus Christ. The Bible opens our eyes to sin, the disease that infects all of mankind, and to salvation, the forgiveness of sin, and God's guarantee of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible answers the big questions that everyone asks. How did we get here? Why are we here? What are we to be doing while we are here? And what happens after we die? The Bible is God's answer book and his instruction book. It is deeper than the oceans and wider than the sky. It is infallible, inerrant, and unchanging. It is God revealing himself to us 
That's why we should read it, study it, meditate on it, and live by it. One of the reasons we wanted to have Greg back on the show is because several years ago, Greg did a study series for his Sunday school class on biblical illiteracy. As we've been discussing in our first episodes in this series, in order to develop an answer to the question of why we are here, we must understand our role in the created order. This in turn means we must recognize that we were created by an almighty, loving God and that God has designed man to bear his image within the created order. The only creature that God made who is said to bear God's image is mankind. That designation is not given to any other earthly creature or even to the angels. But we cannot fully comprehend what bearing God's image means if we are not familiar with the Bible. So we wanted to spend at least one show in this series talking about the poor state of biblical literacy within our current culture. Greg, when you did your series on biblical illiteracy, why did you feel that it was so important to take that up as a subject? The church competes in the marketplace of ideas and ideologies. Listeners to Anchored by Truth are probably far more biblically literate than members of our society at large, and that's good. But we need to understand what is going on in the culture around us if we are to minister effectively to it. Groups like Barna, Gallup, and Pew Research try to keep track of trends, and if they are correct in their analysis, the picture is not good. In 2006, Gallup asked people whether the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Only 26% said yes, down from 40% in 1980. The number of people who said the Bible is a collection of stories, fables, myths, history, and teachings increased from 10% in 1980 to 19% in 2006. Consider these points as you remember that more than 75% of the respondents were professing Christians. Yikes! That's pretty scary. 75% of the people responding to Gallup self-identified as professing Christians And yet only 26% said that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? And that was 15 years ago. And we know that the situation quite likely hasn't gotten any better. That's one of the reasons we launched Anchored by Truth. We wanted to reawaken a widespread understanding that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to come back on Anchored by Truth, to help sound a wake-up call. I would like to serve as a stimulus toward greater and more regular study of the Bible and greater trust in its ultimate authority for our lives. God wants us to pray and read the Bible. It's not about hearing someone talk about the Bible. It's about digging into it deeply. God wants us to be an instrument in His hand, but He needs His instruments to be sharp. Well, I know that you believe that God's desire for His children to be informed students of His Word which is effectively illustrated from a passage in the book of Acts from chapter 17. What specific passage are you thinking about? I think that the way Luke describes the Apostle Paul's encounter with a group of Bereans illustrates perfectly our need for Scripture. Acts described the believers in Berea, which is a region in Greece near Thessalonica. He describes them in this way. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. This is from the book of Acts, 
chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. Note that this part of Acts says that they, quote, examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true, close quote. To the Bereans, the scriptures were the test for truth. And since the time of Christ, the books that have been put together to form our Bible have been revered by Christians as the Word of God, applicable to all time and all circumstances, and the revelation of the mind and will of God. And frankly, there was a time in America when you might have been able to make a similar statement about a large percentage of the population. As the survey information you cited above shows, that may no longer be true, but at one time it certainly was. When this country was founded, the Bible was respected by just about everyone, and biblical principles formed the shape and stability of the culture. This was clearly evident in the realm of public education. Children were taught the alphabet using the textbook entitled The New England Primer, published in 1687. Most, if not all, of the founding fathers were taught to read and write using this book, which unashamedly taught the Christian worldview. This textbook was gradually replaced by a series of books known as the McGuffey Readers. William McGuffey was a committed Christian who was consumed by two passions, public education and preaching the gospel. McGuffey presented education from a biblical foundation, and he reinforced biblical principles of life and morality in the lessons. So it sounds like we started out pretty well in America. In our early history, the Bible was not a book that was relegated to church buildings on Sundays as it is so often today. The Bible was a book that was part of everyday life, and not just for adults, but for people of all ages. That opens up the question of what happened. When McGuffey died in 1873, his book underwent a radical transformation. America was changing into a pluralistic society, a melting pot of religions and worldviews. Europe was already reacting to a number of things, to the revolutionary socialism of Karl Marx, to the philosophy of Kant, followed by Nietzsche, to Europe's increased concern with material naturalism, disguised as science in general and Darwin in particular, and a general intellectual rebellion against tradition and authority. The revised McGuffey readers went totally secular to meet the supposed need of national unity and the dream of America as the place of refuge for the world's oppressed masses. You know, sometimes we think that the secularization of America started in the latter part of the 20th century. A lot of people think that of the 1970s as a decade of free love and the anti-institution movement. But we're saying that the roots of the secularization started about a hundred years earlier, aren't you? And along with the secularization, there was a steady, diminishing regard for the Bible, wasn't there? In general, yes. The secularization of America did not start in the period following World War II, though it certainly accelerated then. In the latter part of the 19th century, the biblical doctrines of salvation, righteousness, and piety, and their biblical examples and references began to be replaced by civil and social values and morality. McGuffey's Eclectic Primer of 1836 was published as a revised edition in 1881, and it contained no reference to God, to God's sovereignty, or to man's accountability to him. The revised McGuffey readers were then completely secular. And while that wasn't bad enough, in the 1920s and 1930s, American education came under the spell of John Dewey, born 1859, died 1952, 
a psychologist and philosopher who is the person most responsible for how American children are educated today. Dewey changed the priority of education from acquiring knowledge to experiencing knowledge. In the 1920s, he became known for his criticism of traditional teaching with its didactic delivery of facts to be remembered in favor of a dialectic. Dialectic is the use of logical arguments or discussion in a back-and-forth fashion in favor of a dialectic as an experience of facts. So what you're saying is that the trend towards a loss of biblical worldview began to be reflected in a wide variety of ways by a large number of people. That reminds me of Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, quote, This false teaching is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough, unquote. That was from the Good News translation. The English Standard Version says, quote, And a little leaven leavens the whole lump, unquote. So, part of the lump that Dewey's teaching leavened was seen in the story of author Stephen Prothero, who wrote a book in 2007 called Religious Literacy, What Every American Needs to Know and Doesn't. He was a professor of religious studies and chair of the religion department at Boston University, and he was initially a follower of Dewey's progressive educational model. Having been turned off since high school to the study of history as a mindless accumulation of names and dates, he embarked on an enlightened teaching career using a test-free environment of, quote, challenging conversation, close quote. He quickly learned, however, that students can't discuss what they don't know, that there had to be some common knowledge in order to understand what the words meant. Can you imagine how things would be dangerously different if engineering, aeronautics, law, or medicine were taught by dialectic? Well, I don't think I would like to fly in a plane by someone who had not been taught that there are certain facts and laws of physics that aren't subject to your opinion. And I certainly don't want a doctor who thinks that anatomy is a subject where cultural trends are a substitute for knowing the difference between muscles and bones. Prothero tells an interesting story of a conversation with a visiting professor from Austria who offered some observations on American undergraduates. This visiting professor from Austria said American undergraduates are, quote, very religious compared to their European counterparts, but they know next to nothing about religion. The European students have compulsory religious education, but wouldn't be caught dead in a church and would be far less likely to believe in heaven and hell. The Americans, in contrast, are simultaneously religious and shallow in their understanding of religion. They attend churches, but their understanding of Christianity is often superficial or incorrect. We don't think about that very much. In America, religious education is almost entirely confined to seminaries or divinity schools where those happen to appear in a broader university setting. But it is common in European nations for there to be mandatory religious education at all grade levels. But the visiting professor's observation shows that it takes more than intellectual knowledge to be a follower of Christ, of Jesus. We must trust our hearts in Jesus' atoning work for salvation to occur. True, but that does not mean that we can neglect the intellectual, informational aspects of our faith. In America, faith without understanding appears to be the acceptable rule among college undergraduates. They are Protestants who can't name the four Gospels, Catholics who can't name the seven sacraments or the seven deadly sins. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to Him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, 
hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. And among those undergraduates, there are Jews that can't name the five books of Moses. And that lack of religious comprehension in college students pretty much mirrors things in other parts of society, doesn't it? Yes. Things are no better in the society and culture at large. For comedians, there are subjects that are almost too easy, sure things that guarantee a laugh. For Jay Leno, one late night, it was the Bible. During the taping of one of his television shows, Leno moved through his audience asking people what they knew about the Bible. Name one of the Ten Commandments, he said. God helps those who help themselves, someone ventured. Name one of the apostles, Leno told them. No one could. Finally, he asked them to name the Beatles. Without hesitation, the answer came ringing from throughout the crowd. George, Paul, John, and Ringo. Leno wasn't spoofing the Bible that evening. He was spoofing our society, which claims a grounding in Judeo-Christian principles, and yet, according to a number of surveys, is increasingly losing touch with the scriptures. George Barna is one of the pollsters who follows faith trends most closely, isn't he? I mean, I've often seen citations from surveys that he has conducted, and they rarely contain good news if you are interested in how well American Christians grasp the basics of their historic faith. That's correct. Evangelical pollster George Barna says that over the past 20 years, we have seen the nation's theological views slowly become less aligned with the Bible. Americans still revere the Bible and like to think of themselves as Bible-believing people, but the evidence suggests otherwise. Christians have been increasingly adopting spiritual views that come from Islam, Wicca, secular humanism, the Eastern religions, and other sources. That's because we're not reading and studying the Bible. If we don't know what God says is truth, it makes us vulnerable to believing a lie. So you would share the perspective that we often express on Anchored by Truth, that it's important for Christians to fully engage their minds in practicing their faith, and that the centerpiece of that practice must be devoting time and attention to understanding and comprehending the Bible. I definitely agree that one of the most serious problems in the church today is one of biblical illiteracy. And unfortunately, this problem is not limited to those in the world, but it is also present in the church. Another pollster, George Gallup, has said, Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. And because they don't read it, they have become a nation of biblical illiterates. How bad is it? Well, consider these results from various surveys. Fewer than half of all adults can name the four Gospels. Many professing Christians cannot identify more than two or three of the disciples. Sixty percent of Americans can't name even five of the Ten Commandments. Wow, that's pretty startling. I think when I was young, just about every kid in my neighborhood would have known those things. And it doesn't stop there. Here are a few more statistics that should stagger anyone who thinks that the Christian faith is important. 82% of Americans believe that, quote, God helps those who help themselves, end quote, is a Bible verse. 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. A survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that over 50% thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. 12% of adults 
believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife? Okay. I don't know whether that is funny or sad. Well, here's one more for you. According to David Eikenberry, a youth pastor at Orchard View Congregational Church in Muskegon, Michigan, only two of ten people participating in a recent Gallup survey correctly identified who delivered the Sermon on the Mount. Most thought the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham, not by Jesus. So all of this goes back to the purpose of this series. We are trying to help people develop a trustworthy answer to the question of why we are here. Why are human beings present on the earth in the first place? And in the first two episodes, we made the point that for us to have a meaningful answer to the question of why we are here, we must understand that we were made by an almighty and loving God. But after the creation of our first parents, Adam and Eve, They rebelled against the one prohibition that God gave them, and that introduced sin and death into the created order. But God began a plan of redemption, and we know we live during a unique time in that plan. We live in the period between the first coming of the Messiah and his planned future return. This points out the need for people to become very familiar with the Bible. It is only from the Bible that we can develop a full-orbed understanding of who and what God is. The Bible gives us a comprehensive picture of God as the human mind is able to form. From the Bible, we learn about God's unrivaled power, unblemished righteousness, immaculate character, and amazing love and grace. This enables us to have a full appreciation for His glory and majesty and then contemplate our own lives and meanings knowing that the sovereign, royal, and perfectly holy God has chosen us to bear His image. The first step in Christian understanding is the reading and understanding of the Bible. Therein contains all the truth any person can need for an understanding of God in all three persons, the understanding of forgiveness of sin, salvation, and eternal life, the commandments of God that we are to follow in order to glorify Him and bring His blessings on to us, and the moral guidelines for living a righteous life. If we don't understand these basics, I don't see how people can ever truly understand their purpose in life. A verse that I have used to describe the penetrating theme of Bible study is Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. That verse says, quote, My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I also will ignore your children. Unquote. And here are a couple of other verses that make the same point that without knowledge of God's Word, a person has no real direction or guidance in life. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. Psalm 119, verse 111. And this, great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I wait for your salvation, O Lord, and I follow your commands. I obey your statutes, for I love them greatly. I obey your precepts and your statutes, for all my ways are known to you. Psalm 119 again, verses 165 through 169. 
And of course, these are just a sampling of verses that we could point to where Scripture makes it clear that we must know God's Word if we are to know our purpose in God's kingdom. But as we did in our first two episodes, we want to be clear that pursuing meaning for our lives is a journey not necessarily a single destination. We have to meet people where they are. So, someone in a crisis who is wondering if their life has meaning needs reassurance first. That reassurance comes in the form of knowing there is a God who loves and cares for them and has a plan for their lives. But as the crisis hopefully passes, we need to help them move on to a deeper and more sustaining answer. If we don't, and they don't, the next crisis will be a question of when, not if. And those kinds of crises occur more often today than ever before because if they don't know the Bible, they can't know the truth about why they are here. If there is a new religion in America, it is the religion of tolerance. The primary dogma of tolerance comes from religious pluralism, which affirms that all religions are equally valid and deserving of equal respect, and from postmodernism, which refuses to commit to any absolute truth. Christianity is clearly out of step with today's culture. Jesus said this in John 14:6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's easy to see how Jesus' exclusive claim could be very difficult and embarrassing for a child coming up in the pluralistic soup of the last few decades or for anyone who has grown up in America in recent decades. The paradox of tolerance, by today's definition, is that Christians lose in two ways. First, the Christian is labeled intolerant of other religions because of the narrowness of his views. Second, Christianity is the least tolerated of all religions. But the further paradox of tolerance is that our society also loses. Without a firm anchor to the truth, people start drifting in this sea of religious pluralism. And like any boat that can't be secured, it may be easily swamped by storms or rough waves. As Anchored by Truth is doing in this series, we must master the basics about God, man, and purpose from the Bible to truly understand why we are here. If we don't gain a firm grasp on those basics, we may ask the question, why am I here until the second coming? But we won't get any closer to finding an answer that will keep our boats afloat. Well, before we close, I'd just like to thank you for the opportunity to join you on Anchored by Truth. And we'd certainly like to thank Dr. Greg Alexander for being our guest today. His service to the church has spanned decades, and he is certainly an inspiration for all of those who are privileged to know him. So before we go, here is a brief summary of where we are in our series about Why Am I Here? To know why we are here, we must understand the nature of the created order and a few other basics. Those basics include knowing that God created the universe. Next, we need to know that the created order fell when man sinned, but that God began a plan of redemption, and the key step in that plan was the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. As always, we want to close with prayer. Today, Let's listen to a prayer for the renewal of the church. A prayer for the renewal of the church. Righteous and just Father, you know the thoughts and meditations of your people as no one could. You are the Lord of our hearts and the fulfillment of all of our ambitions. You have numbered the hairs on our head 
so you certainly know when we propose to do your will and when we don't. Lord, there are a great many faithful followers of yours in our nation today. There are many whose hearts are totally devoted to you and who want to see your kingdom come and your will be done. Yet within your church we believe there are many who have been tempted by the snares of the world and a great many who have fallen prey to the evil one. We are saddened and grieved by this and we yearn for restoration and renewal of the church in our land. Lord, if this nation is to survive and remain a land where people may freely worship you, we acknowledge that it will not be done through or by our efforts. Only the Holy Spirit can change the hearts of our countrymen, and we believe that he will act only as we persistently and continuously pray for renewal to come. Words do not do justice to the longings within our spirits to see this nation be visited by another great awakening. As you have done in the past, bring light to your people. Let us learn to handle your word properly and then bring it to the world by Christ's power, through Christ's love, and praying continuously in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where... We're not perfect, but our boss is.